do the quick show of hands thing again. How many uh, will plan to be on Team Baja this year? Quick show of hands if you're going to be on Team Baja this year. I, I know this. Maybe they're all, they all left. Tim, you got at least... Uh, they're outside helping. There are about three or four who are here. Sixteen from our presbytery. Um, but what I was thinking, I guess there's not enough here to make the announcement now. I was thinking that it would be... I could kind of insert a quick requirement that you participate on Team Baja this year, and that is... To, uh, to do the bug thing with Mr. Schroeder. Because that'll get you ready for Team Baja, that's for sure. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we could have some interesting ideas of what you can do with bugs for next year, Mark. If, uh... <laughs> yes. We have some wonderful stories, do we not? Christy Scott, about bugs. I got a teaser. Last year, last year, Christy, and, and we, it had already been known to us that her plans were to leave for Uganda the following year. And Christy, I, you got to know, to know her is to love her. She's very, let's say, distressed by things like bugs. And, and so, so she'd see this creepy sp uh, spider or cockroach over my head. I'd say, Christy, stop it. Where you're going, believe me, this is, this is nothing. You better get used to it. I wouldn't let her get away with that the whole two weeks. This morning, we are going to be looking at uh, the theme of, you know, I have, I'm working out of two booklets here, and uh, <clears throat> therefore I'm going to be typically, uh, nothing unusual here for Dave Crumb, kind of uh, encumbered by what your book says and what my book says. I never did actually download everything into the other and get it all uh, so that it would coincide, but the title for this morning's, according to your outline, I believe is something along the lines of, there it is. The lasting motive, the lasting motive and the chief end for our evangelism. And I'll make that more clear what it is I'm getting at as, um, as we progress this morning. I'm going to be looking largely uh, at the eighth chapter of First Samuel, though that really just serves as kind of a historical backdrop, for the Lord Jesus Christ as King. Great hymns that you selected, Al, this morning. Thank you very much. And uh, obviously we will, sorry. And we'll go from 1 Samuel the 8th chapter and then look at that uh, as the theme of the king, our king, our great and glorious king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who reigns, is developed throughout God's history of redemption and the scriptures. Uh, so I'll have you turn in your uh, Bibles right now and we'll just read the 8th chapter together as kind of our send-off for our talk this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected as their king, but me. 
as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and your maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his own town. Thus far the reading of the Lord. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the God that you are great and glorious, marvelous in all your deeds. We thank you, Father, also that you are good, loving, trustworthy, that you are true. We thank you, Father, for the great privilege that is ours this day to sing as we have done in worshiping you, to start this day as we would desire to end it. For because from the beginning, the rising of the sun until its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. We thank you that Jesus reigns. We thank you that we have seen the triumph of the cross, but not only from afar, Lord, but by your grace we have been able to see it with the eyes of salvation. That we have looked to Jesus Christ as the author and finisher, the perfecter of our faith, and that we have salvation complete and sure in him. We say among the nations, Lord, that the Lord reigns. Your world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Father, we pray that this morning you would renew in our hearts a zeal for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his righteousness, for his glory, one that was so burned in our hearts that we cannot keep silent, that we too would be able to say, because we believe, so also we speak. Be with us now as we study your word for these next hours. Touch our hearts, Lord. Make us as one people with one united testimony and one desire to make your name known among the nations. We ask in Jesus our Savior. Amen. 
about five years ago, I was approached by a young man from one of our churches. He was from Calvary Church of La Mirada. I'd never seen him before, but he was participating in our weekend witness program. So I met him on that side of the border as he came in with a large group from Calvary. And uh, he made an immediate and yet somewhat perplexing, I must say, uh, impression on me. In his mid-twenties, he was dressed in Southern California casual with hair tied in a ponytail down beyond the middle of his back. And it soon became obvious, as I was saying hello to everybody and welcoming them and getting to know each other, uh, that he wanted to speak to me. He was kind of singling me out and working his way through our living room and working me into a corner, actually, and, uh, and wanted to speak to me privately. When he did, when he had his opportunity, without so much as exchanging names and with a smile on his face as broad as it was warm, he blurted out, who did Christ die for? Clearly, the young man's question had an agenda attached, and because he fit none of my stereotypes, I was baffled as to what that agenda might be. It was a proper theological question, of course, and you know I tease a lot, right, Christy? Because it was a proper theological question, who did Christ die for? I was tempted to tease him and put it in his proper grammatical form. The, the question is, for whom did Christ die? I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't know him well enough. I figured I'd wait till after Weekend Witness. We get to know each other real well in 48, 72 hours. Uh, but uh, so those were my first instinct as, as my tongue was planted uh, in my cheek somewhat firmly. But I, answered, I went to answer his question. I was trying to look for the right way and the right approach. Again, I didn't know really if he was brand new to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, if he wasn't in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, what might be such an agenda behind the agenda behind such a question. So I started out kind of with a broad stroke. And I said, uh, the Bible teaches that the world, this creation, is his. He made it. And because he made it, he's sovereign over it. He made it by his word, so he has the first word. But also, he has the last word, because he will come in the last day to judge that which he has created. So the Bible teaches clearly first of all, that God is sovereign in all of his creation. But then as you're reading through the Bible, I said to him, you get to the question of salvation. And there, the Bible becomes real specific. There's even a jealousy to point out the fact that God alone saves his people. He sent his son to live and to live a perfect life and then to die a perfect death and to do so in the place of his people. It's an, it's an atonement by, by substitution, I said to this young man. So really, what you have to see is that God didn't send a son, and Jesus didn't die for a purpose. He died for a people. He didn't die to make salvation possible. He died to save. Now, at this point, I paused, because I wanted to see his reaction and to see where I'd go from here. And he said, so? <laughs> so I said, well, so what that means is that Christ died. You asked, who did Christ die for? Christ died for his people in particular. He didn't die indiscriminately for everybody. There was a pause, and he, Jerry was his name, said, my missions professor said you don't exist. Now, as you can imagine, with that as a response, I'm totally baffled. I have no idea now what he's talking about. I said, come again? And he said, you're a missionary, right? I said, that's right. An evangelist. That's right again. And you're reformed, is that correct? Yes, I am. I'm reformed. Well, I go to school at Calvary Chapel Bible School, he said, and I was just taught that there is no such thing 
as a reformed missionary. missionary. And, the fir- and I have class on Monday morning, and I'm dying to run back and say to him, there is such a thing as a reformed missionary, because he's living in Tijuana, and I met him this past weekend. I start my talk this morning with that incident, humorous as it is, but really what goes behind that as a way of, unfortunately, perhaps reinforcing the fact that out there, there is the perception of us in here that there's no such thing as a Reformed missionary, as a Reformed Christian who has a zeal for evangelism, be it evangelism through the church or the special office of the evangelist or personal evangelism. We just don't get it, is the impression out there. We need to work to disassociate ourselves from such a stereotype. We need to work to make sure that that is not true of us. If there is some degree of, of, uh, of truth or in the uh, parable that I'm about to read, taken from notes of one of my professors, he also served as my pastor for a time, a very wonderful time in my own pilgrimage of my Christian life, then uh, I pray that the Lord would use this to all of our hearts. And yet, as parables, human parables, there might be some truth and some exaggeration or hyperbole. But uh, with that, with that uh, qualification, I share this with you this morning. It's from the notes uh, in a class written by Dr. Jack Miller, who was teaching then in Westminster Theological Seminary. Once upon a time, he wrote, there was a splendid fishing trawler docked at the seaport near some of the world's richest fishing grounds. The large boat was well-equipped with everything necessary for netting, landing, and preserving fish. On a regular basis, the officers and crew gathered for instruction in fishing theory. Afterwards, they discussed with zeal and intelligence the various approaches to fishing. Sometimes they invited professors from the Marine Biology Academy nearby to offer special lectures. Some maintained that the only way to fish was to anchor and prayed that the Lord would send the fish into the nets. Few of these men attended the prayer meetings called for this purpose. Several argued for friendship fishing, noting that fish are easily frightened. Others held to the position that it is best to seek out the young ones, otherwise they will soon swim away into the deep. In the meantime, day after day, the other fishing boats went out early in the morning and returned at evening loaded with fish. The officers and crew often analyzed their catches. Mostly coals, easy catches of surface fish, surface fish, they said. Their boats are not as sound as ours. Their nets leak and their engines are not properly maintained. Their refrigeration systems are bad so that what they catch can never keep long enough to get it into the cannery. Yet the trawler remained tied to the dock with heavy lines. The engines never roared into life. One day, a critical young crew member was called before the captain and the crew. He had been critical of the continuing education program and very frustrated by the ship's inactivity. We are one of 15 ships in our line. Ten of our ships last year caught only 29 fish. What is wrong? Questions were fired at him by the crew, and he responded even more boldly. Why do we always sit here tied to the dock? Why do we study fishing theory without going out into the deep? Why do we watch others fish and never fish ourselves? I know the other ships are not as well equipped as ours, but isn't what they do imperfectly better than what we don't do at all. Some wanted to fire the young man right on the spot. Others urged caution. After all, at one time the ship had put to sea 
and landed large catches of fish. Finally, a decision was made. A committee was selected to study the matter. That was five years ago. The committee is still studying the matter. And there are rumors of at least two minority reports soon to be presented. <laughs> along with a majority report. And there are four men on the committee. <laughs> when my missions professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia read that to our class, he ended it, Harvey, Dr. Harvey Kahn, he ended it with this. Allegories are a little like tonsillectomies. It hurts only when you smile and swallow your medicine. We do have this reputation. We need to ask ourselves, is it to some degree deserved? And we need to bring uh, any attitudes that would not be in proper submission to the great kingdom proclamation as we have it in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament and bring our lives under humble submission to that and go armed and go enthusiastically and go with great zeal uh, to the nations, be they our next door neighbors or to Mexico, to Uganda, even to the ends of the earth. Now, there are many reasons why we should evangelize others. Some of them I would call selfish reasons. Not selfish in the negative or the pejorative sense, but selfish in the sense that when you do it, there's a real self-interest which is, which is nurtured and nourished. You, you are better off for having done it. As in the case with giving, that the giver receives far beyond anything that he or she would give, so too giving away one's faith. We are blessed beyond description when we do so. It's a wonderful experience. One of, some of these self re, uh, selfish reasons, uh, selfish in quotation marks, might be, one, you grow in your knowledge of the scriptures. Is that not the case? You grow in your knowledge of the Christian faith. You grow because you're sharing that with others, and this is, really is a motivation to run back to the word of God or others who have been trained in the scriptures and, and to learn from that. And you know more perfectly and in a better way, in a growing way, what it is you believe. Because of that, you grow in personal holiness. Who of us has not had the experience, I hope we all have, that when you identify yourself as a Christian on the job or at school or in the neighborhood, you're therefore, by the very virtue of the fact that you have done it, more careful to, uh, to watch how you would live, not as unwise, but as wise, as Ephesians teaches us. You're sense, you sense the exhilaration of one of life's great mysteries. One of life's great mysteries. What would that be? being God's fellow worker. We don't know the specifics of how it is that the great God of all glory, the sovereign one of Israel, who uh, brings all things to pass according to his foreordained purpose, according to his own pleasure, how it is that when he ordains even the instruments of that great purpose and, and the secondary causes, such as our obedience, how it is that this all works together according to his one and glorious plan. We don't understand how that works out in specific detail, but it is a marvelous mystery. And any of you that have had the experience of being used by God to lead another to salvation through faith in Christ and him alone, I think you have gone back to your room that evening or the next day, have you not, and just humbly thanked God and praised him for this wonderful mystery, that he's used a vessel such as yourself, that another who did not know Jesus Christ yesterday now names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today. And you sense the exhilaration that comes from it. Also, when you share your faith with someone and God is pleased to open their hearts to respond to your message, 
you immediately gain forever friends. You might not stay with them in the same town. They might end up in England serving the Lord on the mission field. Or they might end up uh, in your local church where you can have fellowship, sweet fellowship. But be they far away or right next door, they are friends forever because they have been made one in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there are several selfish reasons to uh, grow and your desire and your ability to evangelize others. There are also some unselfish or selfless reasons we should evangelize others. For instance, a loving concern for the lost, their well-being, their true well-being, even a well-being that they themselves do not recognize. That is to say, their destiny. Where will they spend eternity? Uh, is an unselfish, a selfless reason to evangelize others. And also, of course, obedience to the Great Commission, that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us our marching orders, and as his soldiers, we are to obey him who is our captain. And we will look into these more as our week progresses. But my premise this morning is that these reasons, these motivations taken together, are insufficient. They're not lasting. They they wax, perhaps, some days, but they wane other days. Relying on them alone might be the reason that we fail to be consistent in our evangelism. If a deeper, more abiding and all-inclusive, comprehensive motive is overlooked for our missionary endeavor, corporate and individual, we fail. That motive that I suggest to you this morning is a heartfelt love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And with it, a jealousy. Love and jealousy typically go hand in hand, do they not? A jealousy for the glory of our mighty God. So our talk this morning is entitled, Behold Your King. What then would be the lasting motive and the chief end of evangelism? The glory of God. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever in our preaching the gospel, in our sharing the gospel, close by or far away. Behold Your King. As I mentioned, the text comes primarily, at least, or initially, from the 8th chapter of Samuel. Now, something for Samuel. Now, something of the, of the historical uh, context of this chapter. Israel's request, and it's there in your outlines, uh, asking for a king, going, seeking out Samuel, and saying, we want a king. The request, per se, the request in and of itself, was not wrong. This is for, now you see it in verse 5 of the 8th chapter. This for several reasons. One, first Samuel comes on the heels of Judges, you'll remember, and one of the recurring refrains of the book of Judges, chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, chapter 21, 25. What, what is the recurring refrain of the book of Judges? In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Again, chapter 18. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Judges 19.1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Israel in those days had no king. Now there I should qualify that. Israel in those days had no earthly or human king. Israel, of course, had a king, but because Israel had grown increasingly short-sighted and introspective and therefore introverted, she was losing sight of the fact that she truly did have a king 
and all of her problems were brought on by the fact that, that she would not look for the king that would lead her according to his wonderful ways and precepts. But everyone would look to their own ways and their own devices. They would all do what they thought was right in their own eyes. And in so, we're drifting further and further from the glory of her king. So, uh, you can say in this, in this limited sense, Israel to this point had no king. The priestly office uh, was in shambles. Chapter 3, 1 Samuel, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, again, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And we know that that's the backdrop in which uh, even the birth of the prophet Samuel uh, is, is recounted to us in God's word. The, so the, uh, king Leophilus, the, king, the office of the king was not yet for, uh, officially established. The word of the Lord, Lord in the prophetic office was very rare. And the priestly office was in shambles. The priests had no regard for the Lord. First Samuel chapter 2, verses 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tabernacle, entrance to the tent of meeting. The priestly office was in shambles. Also, the, the, the request per se was not wrong because God himself had put this desire through the prophet in their hearts. God himself had promised them a one-day king. Back in Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter, we know the, uh, this section of Moses' discourses to uh, Israel before they were to cross the Jordan and enter, according to the promise, that land of promise. In the 14th verse of chapter 17, it is God through Moses who puts the desire that one day when you will have a king, uh, the, the Lord puts it in their hearts. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and you have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us have a king over us like all the nations around us. And then the prescription to be sure to appoint such a king. God himself had promised them the coming day when they would have a king. And then he gave certain requirements, certain prescriptions in the 15th verse. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. Now outwardly, Israel was in conformity with God's directive. That king had to be anointed by God, had to be chosen by God of their own countrymen and not a foreigner. It had to be not until the time when Israel had entered, taken possession of, and settled in the promised land. And then they had to seek the, Lord, the, king, the king that the Lord himself would select, the Lord would choose. And in seeking out the prophet Samuel, they were, as it were, inquiring of the Lord in order that he would appoint a king that was chosen by God. So outwardly, outwardly it looked like Israel was in conformity to all that the Lord had said. So the request, per se, was not wrong. And the B in your outline, the request was wrong, however, because of what it revealed of their hearts. It revealed a rejection of the Lord. Verses 4 through 9 of, the, of our chapter, chapter 8. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. 
it is not you they have rejected as their king, but me. Israel's request was wrong because it revealed a rejection of the king who rightly, truly, and only ruled over them, the Lord God. They wanted the right thing, but they wanted it for the wrong reasons. Isn't that so often the case with so many of us? What was the reason for which Israel wanted a king? They divulged the, the, uh, the inner thinking of their own heart and how it was a, a, a departure from God's kingship. They wanted to be like the Gentiles. Again, verses 19 and 20. It was as if Israel was saying, we no longer want to walk by faith before a, an invisible king. We want to walk by sight before a visible king. So God grants them their request. In verses 11 to 17, he grants them their request as a testing. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Verse 9. This king will take. He will take your sons and make them servants. He will take your daughters to be servants. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and olive groves. He will take a tithe of all your wealth and give it to his bureaucrats. He will take your servants to be his own as well as the best of your cattle and donkeys, and you yourselves will become his slaves. With a few notable exceptions, most notably King David, Israel's kings failed to rule in righteousness because they failed to understand that no mere man is sufficient to be the king over God's people. The kingship which the Lord had for his people was to be a kingship under God and unto the Lord God. Throughout Old Testament history, God gave Israel the kind of king they deserves. Now, Israel's request from the very beginning in the 8th chapter of 1 Samuel here smacked of duplicity. It sounded good. It sounded like it was all copacetic, right in accordance with the, word, with the word of the Lord recorded in Deuteronomy through the prophet Moses. But it was designed to cover an evil desire. And who did they get for their king? They got Saul. Who was Saul? What kind of king was he? He was one who looked good on the outside. He was quick to invoke the name of the Lord. I'm going to read a couple of sections quickly, but uh, I want us to be reminded, we know the story well, of the type of king that Samuel was. One who was quick to invoke the name of the Lord in uh, chapter 14, verses 43 and 44. We see this horrifying incident, incident wherein Samuel was perhaps no doubt too quick to invoke the name of the Lord. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now must I die? Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. Chapter 15, reading through to verse 25, but I'm going to start this well-known section wherein because of Saul's duplicity, because he did not have a heart that was after the Lord's heart, because he did not submit his kingship to the authority of the great king, and he would not obey, obey to the end, obey in faith, but he would show signs of obedience, but at the last moment always show the lack of integrity in his heart and his, in, in, in his leadership. I'll pick up reading in verse 12. Early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. 
When Samuel reached him, Saul, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the word of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. There again we see where Samuel was quick to invoke the name of the Lord. So much of what he said and did looked good on the outside. But I should read verse 26. But Samuel said to him, I will, no, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the edge of his robe and its whore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn your kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not man that he should change his mind. The Lord had gave throughout the history of Israel those kings which Israel deserved. As Israel's heart turned more and more away from the Lord God, God sent the, uh, the, the people, kings, that fulfilled the warnings that he gave them through the mouth of the prophet Samuel and who would amass great wealth at the people's expense. Solomon, after David, then Rehoboam, and of course, most notably, Ahab. So, He grants them their request as a testing. But also, underneath that, the Lord grants Israel her request as a means of his gracious provision. Although the kingly office was received in sin, it was conceived in grace and righteousness. And it pointed to the coming of the king of kings. The Israel of Samuel's day meant it for evil. Because they didn't follow the Lord. They didn't follow him with their whole undivided heart. They didn't want to walk by faith following an invisible king, but by sight following a visible king. 
but the Lord meant it for good. From its inception, the kingly office of Israel, as we read here in the 8th chapter of Samuel, was laced with poignancy, as were the fraternal counterparts, the, parts, the uh, prophetic office and the priestly office. Ironically, they sought, they sought kings more and more who would take, even ruthlessly take, from the poor kings. You remember Jezebel as she looks at her husband king, uh, Ahab, and rebukes him. Why are you so sullen? Why don't you eat? Well, the reason he was moping and sullen and wouldn't eat is because one man had one little vineyard that he had set his heart after and he couldn't even think or eat or, or sleep until he got it. Kings that would take, even ruthlessly take, from the poor while rejecting the king of glory who only longs to give his people the finest of wheat and to satisfy them with honey from the rock. We're going to take a break. This is really a, a one, one theme we'll be looking at today uh, in, in two parts, in two sections. Uh, and we'll break for a time of questions, I, I, I suspect, and uh, a time of question and answer before we then in the second hour this morning finish this section in your outlines. The lasting motive and chief end of evangelism. The, the uh, glory of God in, in our great God and Savior, the King Jesus Christ. But I would like to uh, close with uh, the uh, quotation you have from Sinclair Ferguson at the bottom of page 17 in your outlines. Ferguson writes, John's Gospel was written to bring forth, bring, to bring us rather faith in Jesus as the Son of God. His portrayal of Jesus is a tapestry of events and discourses. To weave the tap tapestry panels together, he uses various threads drawn from the Old Testament. The kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the threads that John uses to weave this tapestry. In the sixth chapter, Jesus withdrew from the masses, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. <clears throat> when at last they found him, he scolded them for seeking him merely because they ate the bread that he had provided and had their fill. The people are still looking for a king on their own terms after all these years. Well, as we will see, as when we resume, nevertheless, God graciously, what, is, what does grace mean, everyone? You've learned this since you were little, I trust. Undeserved favor. And if, if ever we have an example of undeserved favor, it's the Lord graciously giving the king that we do not deserve, even when our hearts in and of themselves would, would look for a king who doesn't administer his office under the authority of the king of kings, a king that would take. Yet the Lord gives us beyond uh, what we could ask or think in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we'll be looking at John, the 19th chapter, when we resume. Let's take a break. Uh, but before break, just an opportunity to ask questions. And um, it might be such the case that we, our questions uh, aren't, you might be all worried in midstream here, so maybe the questions will be better at the end of the second session, but whatever. Yeah, Bill? I was going to say, uh, please repeat the question. Okay, that's a good um, piece of advice there, and I might even forget at the beginning that you'll remind me to do that. <clears throat> uh, also, though, since there wasn't question and answer of last night's uh, talk, from uh, 1 Peter 3.15, it would be, feel free to ask some questions at this time. If there aren't any, we'll just have more extended break. Welcome to those who came up this morning. 
We see a Bayview contingent. Good to have you here with us. Also, the Dendrinks arrived safely this morning. Yes? World? Yes. Uh, yes, I suspect there 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 would have been uh, the, when I used it. The question was, was I using the world in two different senses? Last night, uh, the uh, the world as that which would be representative of the enemy which we must fight, that we can sanctify the Lord Christ in our hearts. Um, and today, uh, the world in a broader general sense. As you look at the term world in the scriptures, it has not two, but really many uh, senses, many definitions. Um, last night I was using it in its, in its pejorative sense of uh, the world in sin. The world in sinful rebellion against the one who created the world and everything in it and created all things good. So the world, uh, the people of the world in her fallen state uh, of sin. Now I'm not really, uh, what, what reference uh, might there have been, Marty, th- this morning that I can't quite remember how I used it this morning. Oh, uh, but I suspect it had to do with uh, the gospel that is to go out throughout to the end to the ends of the earth. Oh. Oh, good. So, so my point there was uh, a world in as as that. Which, which the Lord had created by the power of his word and created the world, uh, the earth and all that was in it and created, had done so, it was good. Uh, so because the Lord is the creator, God has the first word. He's the sovereign of all creation and it is his prerogative uh, to do with that creation as he would for his own glory. That was the sense in which I was using it this morning. Correct, two different senses. Sorry about that. Okay. And yes. Great. Uh, Herm asked the question. How is it in order to comply with the mandate of 1 Peter 3, verse 15? Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. How can we induce them to ask the question? Now remember that the first point of last night's message was that there has to be the precondition for the question. In order that they ask the question, they must see something in us which would elicit, which would induce itself such a question. We have to live in our lives in such a way that the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living hope, the lasting hope, the hope which doesn't disappoint, is evident in our lives. And that's why I read the quote from John Piper in his book. If they don't see anything particular or unique to us and our lives, if our hopes are based on the same things that their hopes are based on, then it's not likely they're going to ask the question. So we need to make sure that Christ is set apart uh, in our hearts as Lord. That's the precondition. But at at the same time, in in other words, 
in the context there, the question, we should expect that the question will come to us. Uh, I could follow a rabbit trail here with an interesting uh, example of what happened one time to, my, to me and others in our Bible study in college, but may, maybe save that for later. But also your question, I think a question, be, uh, given that, right, given that, how, what can we do to, uh, to turn conversations towards a context where these questions would grow up? That's what you're asking, right? Um, I could start to answer that now, and, I, and I, on Wednesday, at some point Wednesday, I believe Wednesday evening, We'll, we'll speak more specifically about some of the practical application for which I'm trying to lay the groundwork here in Monday, uh, Tuesday. Now we are Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning sessions. Uh, some practical hints and advice to the things that we can do so that they'll ask the question. But um, I, was, I would suggest that uh, some of the things we can do is first prepare in prayer. Uh, to see the opportunity. We'll be playing 18 holes together and then to seize the opportunity uh, to, to uh, direct the discussion in such a way that Hank would ask the question and then give me uh, the insight into your word that I would answer accordingly. Yeah, Raleigh? David, I've pondered that one. Um, the fact that he uses the word hope rather than faith hmm. is my first clue. And the second clue is that it's in the context of suffering uh, injustice. And when a Christian at work or in the neighborhood suffers injustice and still comes up with hope, cheerfulness, and somebody's going to ask, what makes you tick? You don't keep a score of wrongs. You're not looking for vengeance. What makes you tick? I think uh, there's a clue in that context. Right. Did you, hear, did you all hear the answer? Uh, Raleigh's observation that the context that we read of our verse uh, 15 yesterday in, from 1 Peter chapter 3 is, is one wherein he's pointing out the fact that their suffering is, is, um, is different, that they portray, that they display in the face of suffering unjustly a hope that the world doesn't have and that the world doesn't know. And when we suffer for righteousness sake because of the Lord Jesus Christ and that our response is joyous and that we don't sin in our response, this will attract the question. What is it about you that doesn't seek vengeance? that you don't uh, return curse for cursing, but blessing for cursing. And, and the more we live out our lives in that living hope, uh, in the context of suffering, persecution, uh, um, any, any type of um, ridicule, then they will see the way we respond, and that will be a very attractive element in our lives. The people will start asking the question. The, uh, the insight here, too, that those who have this hope live purposefully. purposefully. We have purpose uh, in our lives. And that uh, is, would be a, uh, um, a point of contrast with the world, the modern American uh, society and culture, where people live without that purpose. So uh, they would, again, ask the question. I remember a uh, friend who, uh, well, I kind of, in order to tell the story, this is the college story that I was telling you about, 
Uh, I, in order to tell the story fully, I have to give you her first name, but I'll just give you her first name. She came back to our Bible study the first year that we were getting this going at Bethlehem College, Mar- uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Moravian College. Her name was Joy. And uh, uh, many of us have heard, I trust, perhaps heard beyond, no, more, number, uh, more often than we can count, Joy. Uh, the, uh, the term Joy and the acronym for the term Joy, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. She came back and and told the story to our fledgling, somewhat new and growing, we didn't have many numbers back then, youth group and Bible study on Friday nights, that someone had asked her at work, at her job, where she waitressed, uh, Joy, there's, there's, there's something different about you. Tell us, some, uh, t- tell me why it is that you're different. As she's relating this story, I, I was so saddened because it seemed to me she had the perfect name to be able to really zero in and answer and give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in that answer uh, with a name such as Joy. Uh, unfortunately, as she was kind of developing this, this answer, she just said, uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I've just always been kind of cheery and, and bouncy and, and, and joyful. I guess my name fits. Uh, I, I just have always been that way. And I remember thinking, oh, what a missed opportunity. And even going up to her afterwards and saying, your name, the first letter, each letter would spell out the term and, and be used as an acronym. So, so I think a lot of it, too, also, is that we are prayerfully prepared. That when these conversations do come up, we've thought this through a little bit. And we're quick to redirect the conversation, the answer to the question, to Jesus Christ and to him alone. Okay, there's one, well, let's take the last question, then we'll break. Um, the, the question was, uh, with the, uh, the, with the uh, caution for, I don't know if this is too controversial, but why is it that in the OPC there is this impression of, a, of an apathy uh, of, of us? Why is it that there's the impression that we, that we don't have this uh, desire to share our faith, to be um, amongst the best evangelists, to be adept in personal evangelism? I, I think that there might be many answers to that question. By the way, don't hesitate for questions that might be controversial in nature, because the way I see it, there's at least seven pastors here, and I'll I'll just pass those questions on to them. Um, uh, And that's why I read this allegory at at the beginning. If if there's some degree where that's true of us, that that we cherish uh, the Reformed faith, but we do so with something of a remnant mentality. And I'll even go so far as to say, I'm probably getting on thin ice here, that, that we, we have uh, behind that, historically, given the beginning of our denomination, the tragic and yet victorious beginning of our, of our denomination. But if there's not something of a vestige of never again, never again, and we uh, need to have our focus at, at being uh, uh, true to the faith of the scriptures, but to the, to the exclusion of looking 
uh, to the world in this desperate need. I am told that at the beginning of Westminster Theological Seminary, at the opening speeches on her founding, and I haven't come across this. Some of you might know primary sources for me. But as you read through, or those that were there to hear them, the, at the commencement exercises, the speeches were filled with such optimism and zeal for what the Lord, the expectation was what the Lord would do through the Orthodox Presbyterian Church throughout the land. And that there was then some discouragement because it did not come to pass. There might be a number of reasons for that, just the way things happen in God's providence in the early years of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But I think for our purposes, what we need to do is ask ourselves the question, why is there a deficiency in my heart and in my life? Why am I slow and hesitant to share my faith? So as we go through these talks, the first one, Behold Your King, what my desire is to do is to bring us back to the King, the true King, and, 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 a, and a love for Him, and because we have this love, that the jealousy or a zealousness, a zeal, uh, to, to make Him known uh, would, would uh, motivate us to commit ourselves again to sharing our faith, again, individually and corporately as a church, or also looking at some of the barriers to personal evangelism. Might, might there be an, uh, a barrier of embarrassment or personal shame? We're going to address those specifically throughout this week. I don't know if anybody else would like to develop that answer, an answer to that question. Okay. Well, then let's, let's close. Let's break for, what is it, 15 minutes? You guys hold me to the schedule, okay? Because I, it's a half hour. Thanks, Bill. And we'll see you here at 1045.